Wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to let me just pin you, Rabbi. Let me pin. Okay. There we go. Thank you so much, more. I appreciate the introduction. Uh, I have a lot of things to say about more too, but good things only. But Bezad Hashem, when he gives this to you, I want to be the Makadim. Uh, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, I told uh, Sina last night that I'm a little uh, emotional right now. As much as I'm happy to be learning with you, I'm also sad that this is the last of this series. But I'm sure that we will go, Mikhail, and we'll continue learning together in other opportunities. So for right now, uh, let's focus on what we were given the task at hand. I'm speaking today about gelatin and a few other sensitive ingredients. And perhaps before we talk about gelatin, I'll tell you a story. I was asked to speak in Akila. And I was really, for a few months, I was working on a wonderful, uh, I'm working on a book, Bazaar Hashem, will come up one day. Uh, the understanding of prison systems in Halakha, justice system, uh, the rights, the human rights of criminals, people that our society usually see as undeserving. Those of you who have learned with Magabanit, you've heard about deserving and undeserving poor and the like. And I really wanted to share. And when, when I came to the kid, I said, what do you want to learn about? And they said, Rabbi, we want to learn about gelatin. I remember feeling like a balloon that you inflated the air. Like, hey, I want to share with you something that the Chamin spoke about, something something that the Rishonim argued about. And then what do you want to learn? About gelatin. Okay, but what are Chachamim tell us? You should only study what your heart wants you to study. So if your heart wants to study about gummy bears, let us study about gummy bears. And so today, I want to put the gelatin issue to rest for somehow, some reason. This has become one of the more famous or infamous issues that we deal with quite regularly. And I always tell my moderators on our Shiviti forum, if one more person asks me about gummy bears and gelatin, I'm going to lose my mind. And so today, we're going to actually give a proper shiur to understand what is going on here with gelatin. As I've told you in the past, not everyone agrees on this topic. I'm certain there are even people here who may have uh, passionate opinions about whether gelatin is mutal or not. Uh, today is my shiul, so it's my chance to share with you the way we see gelatin here. If you don't agree, you're more than welcome to give another shiul, and I will be happy to attend. And if the emet is with you, I will be convinced in the other direction. Let's start again in Masechet Abu Dazarah. In Masechet Abu as you notice, we have 42 pages of sources. So today I'm going to be uh, telling you most of the sources as we go along instead of reading every word for ourselves. Our Chachamim discuss a matter called Noten Tam Ligam. We've discussed this together in the context of of making utensils kasher. What is Noten Tam Ligam? Something that falls into a food mixture. It's put into a food mixture. And this something is not a good something. So imagine spoiled milk falling into your chicken soup. It's not milk. It's spoiled milk. It's rancid milk. Noten tam gum, what we know is mutal. It's something that is permissible. Now the rabbi is debated over here. And if you look on page two, you will see that really there's a fundamental argument between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Meir believes that rancid food, noten tam gum, something that gives bad flavor into a mixture, is forbidden only when that food was always rancid, it was always bad. But if it is something that turned rancid, so milk would be a great example of that, then that would never be nullified, at least not in this way. And by contrast, Rabbi Shimon believes that it doesn't have to be rancid from the beginning. It could be something that turned bad. And that's something that is now inside of our food is no longer an issue 
because it is not ten times. The way they learn this from is a verse in Vaikran. Source two. If your brother becomes impoverished and his hand becomes shaky among you, he's suffering financially. And you, ah, interesting. I may have quoted you the wrong verse here. In any case, our Chachamim, I did quote you the wrong verse. Look here. Uh, look in the Gemara, page two, on the top right. The Pasuk says, You shall not eat of any unslaughtered animal carcass, who may give it to the resident alien, a gale who is within your gates. So, unslaughtered animal carcass is not kasher for us. But who is it fitting for? There are non-Jewish people that are residents of the land of Israel. They're Geret Tushav. They found a very unique halachic category of people who, maybe if I could summarize for you, they're citizens of a Jewish state, but not full-fledged citizens of a Jewish state. You can give this food to a Geret Tushav. And I brought verse 2 to show you what is a Geret Tushav. Because he says, Im hu or Tushav? Is he a Geret or Tushav? Is he a stranger or a resident? These are people who are quasi, not Jewish, but quasi-citizens of the state of Israel. They've accepted to live in Israel and not worship idols. <coughs> but they still eat nevelot. They still eat food. There are dead animals. They're still eating that. And therefore, so long as you can give it to him, the question is, is it really a thing that is inedible or is it just inedible to a Jew? Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Shimon argue. Rabbi Meir says, if this thing was always not fit for human consumption, then it falls into food, it's fine. But if it is fit for human consumption originally, now it's spoiled, it doesn't work. Rabbi Shimon disagrees. So long as right now it's not fit for human consumption, if it falls into food, there really is not an issue with this. And now we should see what the Poskim do with the information. If you turn to me to page three, I quote it to you here, the Rambam, Maran, and the Rama, and they're all on the same page. So everyone is now in Shalom Bayit here in source one on page three. The Rambam tells us, all of the foods that are forbidden, you only are prohibited, I mean, you only violate a prohibition. Better yet, you're only liable for a penalty if you eat them in the way that they're supposed to be eaten. Except for these two exceptions of meat and milk and kileh hakerem. Because there the Torah didn't say achila. There it talked about cooking and other things. So for example, what's an example the Rabbam gives? Oh, you, you, um, you, you took something that was forbidden. You swallowed it and it was so hot. Till your throat burned from it. Or you ate it raw. Or you mixed in bitter things. You no, know, la'ana. I recently bought myself tea made out of la'ana. It's not what I was expecting. Yeah, I almost died from it. Uh, la'ana is what they call it, wormwood in English. You can buy a special tea, wormwood tea. Uh, I remember it in Moroccan tradition, Shiba. They told me this one is Shiba. It's definitely not Shiba. It's definitely not Shiba. Uh, I ordered this tea and the whole world collapsed around me. The flavor was so terribly bitter. I can't, there's no word I can tell you for that. So you mix this bitter herb, the tochiyen hesech, and forbidden wine, or the tochidera, or with meat that is forbidden, and you ate this meat, or you drank this wine, now that it's completely bitter. Or you ate 
non-kasher food, but after it's spoiled and became rancid, and it's no longer fit for human consumption, but you ate it anyways, says the Rambam, you are exempt from consequences, liability. By the way, these words, are going to be a topic of much conversation soon. When it says exempt, does it mean I'm allowed to do it? Or just that if I do it, nothing will happen to me. But I'm not allowed to do it. We're going to discuss soon. But if you mix the bitter herbs into meat and milk mixtures, mixtures, which we're not allowed to have any benefit from at all, then a person will still be liable for a consequence, even if uh, it has bitter flavor in it. Rambam tells us in source 2, we've already explained previously, that if you mix something which is forbidden and it gives flavor into that which is permissible, everything is prohibited. Meaning if your forbidden meat falls into your kasher meat, it's forbidden to eat that. Why? It gives off flavor and you're not allowed to eat non-kasher flavor. When does that apply? When you, that meat that fell in gives it a better flavor. But if one fell into the other and it ruined the flavor of the food that it fell into, it is permissible. But, says Rambam, here's the question. It has to be rancid from the beginning until the end. But if it's something that doesn't taste good now, but ultimately, it will become good. Or it was good in the beginning, even though later it will be bad. Rambam is making an exception to this rule of Noten Tam Livgam. It matters, does it stay prohibited? Does it not stay prohibited? I'm going to give you a sneak peek now to understand what exactly we're dealing with. And that is gelatin, which we're going to talk about on the next page. But just quickly, gelatin comes from non-kasher animals, or at the very least, kasher animals that are nivedot to made of their bones. Uh, they dry them, they turn them into a powder, and they make them into to congeal things, like gummy bears, like... Uh, puddings and yogurts and ice creams and all kinds of things like that. Gelatin pops up in the most unusual places sometimes also. You can find it in, in the most interesting places for consistency's sake. Gelatin began as something that was able to be consumed. It was an animal, not kashif. But then it was turned, at least according to our understanding, into something which was inedible. It was not good tasting. This gelatin is a, is a foul. Nobody eats gelatin powder the way that it comes. Fine, so it's a su. Now it's not a big deal. But once it's put back into food, then it becomes edible again. And so the question really we're going to deal with today is does gelatin that started off good, turned bad, and is now edible all over? Clearly it's edible because we're eating it, yes? Is this something that is now permissible or is it something that because it was a su, it stays a su, or because it became mutar, it became permissible, now no matter if you can eat it or not, it becomes mutar. Here from the Rambam, we see that there is a difference between something that stays prohibited and something that later becomes edible again and then becomes prohibited all over again. Maran in the Shulchan Aruch in Source 3 writes the following. Anything which tastes bad, does not forbid its mixture. And even if the bad flavor doesn't come from itself, it tastes great on its own. But it only is pogem when it's mixed in. 
So imagine there's something like this. You have food. And this food shouldn't have another ingredient in it. That ingredient tastes fine on its own. But when you mix that ingredient, I'll give you an example. You have a bowl of cereal and milk. And you have some non-kasher ketchup. I'm giving you a crazy example for no good reason. I want to illustrate my point. And now you put this ketchup in your cereal and milk. Now the ketchup itself is not pagum. But what did it do here? It made your food pagum. In which case, Maran said, it's not a problem. So it can either be pagum, machamat atzmo, the thing itself is rancid, or the fact that it mixed into your food is what made it not good. Both of those things are mutarim. In the second halakha in Bet, Maran writes, Pagam en legamre This not good tasting food, it doesn't have to be so bad tasting that you would never eat it. Even if it's a little bit not good, it does not, um, it does not prohibit what that which it fell into. Maran writes, It doesn't have to be so bad tasting that you wouldn't eat it. It just has to be something that's a little bit bad taste. The mixture is a little bit bad. And here you might actually see Maran is taking a stance that seems to be, at least without all the people in that others do, not necessarily in agreement with the Rabbah. Now Maran mentions, there's one who says, and he now goes through many different opinions. But at the end of the day, Maran's opinion is that Devar Pagum, even if it's not completely Pagum, this thing does not make something else non-kasher. And an example that Ramad gives, so if you look at the left column on page three, in that in those brackets, funny looking brackets, that's the Ramad. I tried to make it gray, but then you wouldn't be able to see it. So, the Ramad gives an example. Especially if there's something that has no flavor at all. You have a pot. In this pot, what do the goyim do? They make, they boil the honey in that pot. Or even you do it. Even though there are bees' legs floating in the honey. I know that may make you not want to eat honey anymore. But there are insect legs inside of your honey. That does not prohibit the pot, for example, because bees' legs don't give off flavor. And even if they give off flavor, it's not a good flavor. And that's a classic case where we're not concerned about something not kasher being mixed into something kasher. That would be a classic case of something which is pagum. Now, everything else we're going to talk about concerning gelatin, Maran, the Rambam, the Rama, they don't speak about gelatin. This is not something they talk about. And as such, I can't tell you, the Shukhan Aruch says X. What I can tell you is, the Shukhan Aruch says, Hey, gelatin is this. Does it fit into what the Shulchan Aruch says or does it not? Is what the Shulchan Aruch writing applicable to gelatin or is it not? And as with any other interpretation and any other analysis of a halakha, there are going to be differences of opinions depending how you are able to explain or not explain a new scenario which has now popped up into the world and you're trying to use old sources as precedents to new cases. As such, I've broken up this conversation into a few different elements. You know, initially I was wondering, so how do I teach this to you? I can't go from the Gemara to the Rambam, the Shukhan. There's simply no flow of gelatin. I said, maybe I'll go backwards. Maybe I'll take one of the Acharonim, like Chamor who wrote a numerous page to Shukhan, and we'll go through every one of his sources. And I said, I'd rather break down the concepts surrounding gelatin into a few categories. 
And then I will also share with you the opinions of those who use those concepts to teach different things regarding gelatin. So for right now, I want to approach one part of the conversation is whether gelatin is kasher or not, has to do with if something is as dry as wood. Let's look at the Ramah on page four, source one. Ramah writes, Oh hakeva, the flesh of the of the stomach of the cow. Sometimes they salt it and dry it. And it becomes like wood. That's dry. It's hard like wood. And they fill it up with milk. Why do they fill it up with milk? It now becomes some type of container. They use the cow's stomach and they dry it to the point where now you can use it as a utensil to hold milk. It's permissible, even though that is a meat and milk mixture. Because now that it is completely dry, it's just like any other piece of wood. It's not a cow's stomach anymore. Yes, it's made of cow's stomach, but it no longer has the kashrut status of cow's stomach, of meat. Now it's just dry as wood. It has no moisture left over from the meat that it once was. So the Ramah teaches you something here, which is based on a shibole haleket, that the Beit Yosef, Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo quotes in the Beit Yosef. The Ramah says, that a cow's stomach that is dry like wood, you can now hold milk inside of it. And it is no longer prohibited from meat and milk mixture or forbidden mixture, whatever else it would be, because this no longer has the status of meat, rather it has the status of wood. The shach. In source two says, he extends this even further. This is true with all the other inner organs. The intestines, when they dry them and they turn dry like wood, Nonetheless, puts in a qualifier. Yes, it's muta. But ideally, don't do this. But it's muta. Haraperitz shows in source three that if you read the shach properly elsewhere, the shach is really telling you this is not a unique halakha to dried cow udders or stomachs, other body. It has to do with any organ of an animal. Any meat which is so dry that it's now dry like wood, is no longer a problem of kashrut. Now, the khatila is it only for rifu'ah, for healing purposes? We're going to take those pieces one at a time. If you look in source form, source form is Rabbi Cheskel Landa. He is a rabbi in Europe, writes a famous book, Nodab Yudai, spoke to you about him recently in one of my other shiurim. And he's dealing with a non-kashel fish using ingredients from a non-kasher fish, essentially the Nodabiuda takes the Ramah's opinion into consideration regarding the stomach of a cow, but ultimately he disagrees with him. And if you look towards the end of the source, before source five, that even if a human wouldn't eat it, but a dog can still eat it. It's still considered forbidden. Says in Odab Yudah something fascinating. We heard the Rambam say that certain things are patu. You're exempt from them. Why are you exempt from eating them? Says the Odab Yudah. You're exempt from eating them not because they're no longer considered nivela. They're no longer considered not kasher. You're exempt from eating them because the Rambam tells you that anything that you eat in an unusual fashion, not in the usual manner with which you eat it, in that case, you're exempt from liability. Not that you can do it, but you're exempt from liability. Says in but don't misunderstand this teaching to say that something that is dry is completely permissible to eat and do whatever you want. It's just because consuming something so dried up 
is not the normal way that you eat it, then it's you're not liable for a consequence. But at the end of the day, you're not allowed to do it because it's still considered nivana. Now, this is a famous opinion of the Nodab Yudah, and this argument is going to continue throughout the generations. Already near his generation, source 5, the Magid Mishneh on the Rambam, he argues with Nodab Yudah, and he says, that this nivela that is now so dry that it's like wood, it's not that you, you eat it, you're just exempt because it's eaten the wrong way. But it's because we rule like Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Shimon is telling you that something that is rented, meaning this food in front of us, which is not edible anymore, this food is no longer even considered a nevila at all. And if you would ask me, what is the status of this cow's stomach? It is completely kasher. Not just that you're exempt from liability, but it is completely kasher. Now, the Mordechai in Masechet Pesachim, this is about a completely different thing. Something else. But he discusses this language of when the poskim use a word like patul, you are exempt. Does it mean it's permissible or just that you're exempt from liability? And he says, Lav dafta ela patur mutar. This is very often. The term patur also means mutar. It's not just you're exempt, but you're exempt and it's completely permissible for you to do this thing. And therefore, it seems the Magin Mishneh's understanding from the Rambam, that the Rambam's use of the word patur tells you that not only are you exempt, but also that you are permiss- you're permitted to do this entirely on its own. Now, this obviously a disagreement in how we are uh, understanding these words, but you have the Nodabu on one side and the Magid Mishneh on the other side. In source seven, Rabbi Yaakov Reisher, in his book, Shavuti Yaakov, he says that even something which was completely prohibited in the beginning. So it was a completely prohibited. And now it is completely dry like wood. This thing is completely permissible. And therefore, he says, if you look on page five, because there is no more moisture, now it is completely dry. Then it has no taste anymore. And because of that, this is completely permissible. In source 8, Rabbi Yaakov, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Loberboim, Luberboim, if my wife was here, she would help me out, from Lisa. He wrote a famous book called Chavod Dan. And he says that there are different reasons for why this is mutal. You have to analyze the reason why something is mutal before you can apply it somewhere else. And he gives you essentially two different reasons. If you look at the bottom of source 8, and uh, page 5 on the right, and the top of page 5 on the left, you'll see two different reasons. Let me show you the outside. If this is forbidden, only because it's, uh, I mean, if dried food is forbidden, it's completely wood-like, dry-like wood food is permissible, only because it's not the way you normally eat it, if now you bring it back, meaning you hydrate it again, and you make it soft, you make it edible, then this is prohibited all over again. Why? Because the only reason it was permitted when it was dry was because that's not the right way to eat it. But if you hydrate it again and you make it soft and edible, you put it in a soup, I don't know what you're going to do with it, that no longer would be considered permissible because now you're eating it the way in which it normally is consumed. But if you believe 
that it's not because of that that this is permissible. But the reason is because it's not a nivela anymore. It's, it lost its status of non-kasher food. Then what do I care what you do with it? Now that you brought it back to life, you brought back something kasher to life. So what? It's kasher. Now it's just in its new form, kasher. So understand regarding gelatin, which they're not speaking about technically. But if you, uh, actually, maybe. But they are telling you here two things. If the reason why the gelatin is mutag and it's dry form is because it's not the way you normally eat animals. But now that you made it edible again, it's edible. And therefore it's prohibited. But if the reason why it is permissible is because it no longer is considered non-kasher, it's completely kasher in front of you right now, then the fact that you hydrated, you brought it back to life, you've turned it into food, doesn't make a difference. It still retains its original status of kasher. And source nine, Haratzi Pesach Frank just summarizes what I told you. So if you want to see a short summary of Haratzi Pesach Frank, Haratzi Pesach Frank is a special program. I have time. I can tell you a story about Chippesa Frank. Uh, Chippesa Frank was the Ashkenazi chief rabbi in Jerusalem. A lot of politics surrounding that, especially when Rav Kook became the chief rabbi and many people tried to make problems there. Harav Peretz, my rabbi, has a minyan in the synagogue of Harav Chippesa Frank. So he has a business he goes to, but he also has a minyan of Ashkenazi that he's the rabbi of. It's right next to his house. Harav Chippesa Frank was a special, special chacham. And then one day, he was sitting with a bunch of Rashi uh, Shiva, Hasidic Rebbe's, they were all in his office speaking with him. And Chacham Yosef, who was a young, young Bachu, maybe he was married, I don't know. He walked into the office to ask Sidi Pesach Frank a question. How Sidi Pesach Frank saw Chacham Yosef walk in, he stood up for him out of respect for him. He's a senior rabbi, standing up for a young, a young Yeshiva student. And one of the Rebbe's that was sitting there asked in Yiddish in a derogatory way, Rav, why are you standing up for this Frank? A Frank is a very bad, it's a racial slur for Sephardic Jews. Why are you standing up for this uh, racial slur Sephardic Jew? And Sweet Pesach Frank told him, he said, don't worry, one day you're going to have to stand up for him also. That was his answer back to him. The uh, said he was a special chacham who was very close with the Sephardic community. And Sweet Pesach Frank, he tries to create a case around gelatin. He was asked regarding ice cream that they put gelatin inside of it for texture's sake. And then, look how they write gelatin in Yiddish. It's really complicated in the source pen. He says that I know that initially there may be a problem. Look on page six of Ma'amid. Ma'amid is special halakha. Ma'amid says that even something which is mixed into food and is nullified in 60, so it's nullified. Unless it is a Ma'amid. We spoke about this with cheese. When something becomes a ma'amid, ma'amid means it's the primary agent that makes it into what it is. It's the standard, uh, uh, stabilizer. I don't know what you would call this uh, word ma'amid in English. The ma'amid, the gelatin, even though it's not as much as the ice cream that is in the ice cream or the milk or the sugar, but the fact that it's such an important ingredient that makes the texture what it is, then we know there's a rule among our rabbis that a ma'amid, a ma'amid is like chametz and pesa. Even in a thousand, you can't nullify a primary ingredient. It doesn't make a difference that it's so small in number. But it's a primary ingredient of the food that you're eating. And therefore, he suggests, maybe you're not even able to permit it in the first place. Now, he gets involved here in the next two bold sections, trying to figure out that a devah ma'amid, is it prohibited biblically? Is it prohibited rabbinically? Does it actually make a difference? He has a chakira here. Is it the fact 
that it gives flavor into the food, or even if it doesn't give flavor, it's a problem. He goes to some uh, pool over here. I'm skipping that right now. At the bottom of page six, the Rufzir Pesach friend wants to go down a different road. He said, he said, if I'm understanding the Ramah correctly, I've reached the conclusion that a Davah HaMa'ami is like gelatin, even though it does not give off flavor. You don't taste beef inside of your ice cream. It doesn't make a difference because it's a Ma'ami that cannot be nullified. And therefore he says, And therefore I must approach the question of gelatin in a different way than others have approached it. And let's see if we can find a way that can make gelatin mutal, even according to someone like the Nodab Yehuda, the earlier source, who would never permit such a thing. And his understanding is as follows. The whole conversation here is surrounding something that is not fit for consumption of humans. Humans don't eat this. And because of this, is it a question, is it kasher, is it not kasher? Was it originally rancid, not originally rancid? How about now? Is it but something that is nifsal afilu lachilat kelet? Like chametz and pesa, something that even a dog wouldn't eat it. Then there's nobody there who says that is prohibited. Meaning everybody would agree that even if a dog wouldn't eat it, it's not just not fit for human consumption. It's not something a dog would eat either. Then that would make it completely permissible, even to the chamim who would prohibit gelatin for the other reasons we mentioned above. Then, if you look on page seven, he says. Exactly what I told you on the top left. He says the and this powder that is gelatin. It could be that even dogs wouldn't eat it. And no living being would eat this food. And because of that, it's no longer considered forbidden at all. And therefore, it wouldn't make any mixture prohibited because the root ingredient gelatin is kasher already because even a dog wouldn't eat it. But I am not a scientist. I can't make this decision for you. You need to do your homework. You should either ask an expert chemist or a medical professional or doctor, somebody who could check whether animals would eat this powder gelatin or not. Until you do your research, don't tell anyone that it's mutal, but also don't tell anyone that it's prohibited. Just wait until the conclusion has been reached. So we've now seen that regarding the stance of is it considered like dried wood or not, there's a machoket. Some say that works. Some say it doesn't work. Some say it's patul, but it's still forbidden. Some say it's completely mutal. The Lotsipas of Frank tries to give another scenario where everybody would agree it's mutal, and that is, would a dog eat plain gelatin or would they not? That's a good question, and one would have to check that out on their own. On page eight, I want to introduce you to something called musk. Now, musk, the problem is musk is used today to refer to so many different things. I can't actually tell you what is the musk that the Rosh is talking about. I'm sure that if I sat properly and spent time sitting on the Rosh and did my research, but for me, it's only a side point, And therefore, I didn't sit here long enough to tell you. I can exactly tell you what is the musk he's talking about. But the way he explains it is that some part of an animal that is really blood but once they slaughter it, it disappears and it creates a scent. And from what I understand, this is a scent that comes from animals. That's what it is that is used in different productions of food. The Rosh 
though he disagrees with him, quotes Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah says that any time you take something forbidden and you turn it into something new, it's chadash, it's not what it was before, then this, even when it's mixed into something kasher, and even if it gives good flavor, it's not a problem of kashrut. Understand? He's coming out from a completely different angle. If you take a non-kasher food product and you process it to the point that it's something completely different than what it initially was, then it falls into kasher food. You put it in kasher food and it gives off good flavor. It's completely permissible because there's nothing wrong with it because it's a new creation. So what that it comes from something not kasher? Now it's something completely new. The Radbaz, he writes the same thing and he permits the mask and he even adds something else. He says something that is mixed into food, not for flavor, but it's mixed in for another reason. So for example, with a musk, it's mixed in for the scent, for the smell. So that's not even a problem in the first place because it's, it's not a food. We're not eating it for its flavor. It's there for a different reason entirely. The Rosh doesn't agree with not the Rabbi and not the Rabbas. But, but the Madanay Yom Tov says that this is the custom of everybody who's seen it his whole life, that people use these things all the time, and this is Pashut, that this is completely permissible. Regarding Panim Chadashot, look me on page 10. There's a famous Ashkenazi Chacham, Rabbi Cheskel Abramski. Rabbi Cheskel Abramski, if I'm not mistaken, was a rabbi in the United Kingdom. Yes, and then he came to Yerushalayim, there it's said. Harapelet has a special place in his heart for Rabbi Cheskel Abramski. Uh, I think they called him Rechatskel Abramski. That's how they say him by National Azim. Uh, Rav Abramski, I'll tell you a story about him. Him and his wife were very meticulous people. They were, everything they did, like uh, clockwork. Everything was scheduled, everything was, they never deviated from their routines and their schedules. And they say that when Rabbi Abramski would come home, he would see that the house was full of people waiting to consult with him, ask him halachic questions, whatever else, get advice from him. And he would always see, there's a group, huge throngs of people. He would tell them, wait, please, I need to go speak with my wife. He would close the door and he'd sit down with his wife for about half an hour, or an hour, and talk, how was your day? What did you do? What did you eat? What did we get? Did anybody call? I catch up on everything. And then he would go. And Harapena said, you think, did the same thing every day. And his wife also did the same thing every single day. So why did they sit there and talk? He said, Chesla Abramsky was teaching his students something that even a leader can never give themselves up entirely to their people and forget their family. You still have a wife. You're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're a principal, you're a politician. You still have a wife. You still have children. You have a husband. You have family. You have, you have people that are, they're really yours. The rest of the world, you can serve them, but not on account of everybody else. And our parents, when he sent me out to America, he made me promise him that there would be one day a week, at least one day a week that I don't teach. That that's the day that I'm with my kids. If I'm always running to call out the teacher, there has to be a night that I read bedtime stories. There has to be a night that I go for a walk with my wife. That go, it's not, you cannot forget the people you are obligated towards because of the people that you've chosen to serve. Because Ramsey was an example of that. He was a very unique person. This Teshuvah is not found in the writings of Rabbi Cheska Abramski. This Teshuvah is found at the beginning of the fourth volume of Tzitz Eliezer, of Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who I told you in the past was the chief rabbi of the Shariat Tzedek Hospital. He was a student and a friend of Halab Uziel. So even though he was an Ashkenazi Chafan, he was very well versed in Sephardic Halakha, to the point that when Halab Uziel founded the world Sephardic Yeshiva, 
he appointed the Tzit Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, to be the Walsh Yeshiva. And when asked about it, he said, because he's the one, who's, he's the real person who's fitting to be called a Sephardic Walsh Yeshiva. That was uh, Abu Ziyar. Uh, Rev he reaches out to Bechesta Abramsky and says, you know, we spoke about gelatin in the past. I would like you, please, to write a Teshuvah for me regarding gelatin. And this Teshuvah is found in the beginning of the fourth volume of Tzitzel Yezer. If you look in source one on this page at the bottom right, essentially, and we didn't read some of the Yosef's opinion yet, but Bechesta Abramsky is going to argue with this opinion of Rehobad Yosef, for example, that gelatin is an entirely new creation. It's like what Rabbi Yonah said. It's a whole new thing. It, gelatin is not animal bones. Gelatin is so processed to the point that what's sitting in front of us right now has no relation whatsoever to the bones of the animal that we took it from. And because of that, it's mutab. Rabbi Chesna Bramsi disagrees. He writes, It's so clear to me. The gelatin, which is made of bones, just because it went through a chemical process, it didn't transform it from something, one thing to another thing. The gelatin is the same exact bones, it's just in a different shape. But it's the same thing. You can't tell me, because I said, that gelatin is a new creation and it's not bones. Umimela, on the top left of page 10, and kan makom matan There's nothing to talk about here. In the, from the writings of Rabbi Yonah, that it's a new creation, you can't tell me that gelatin is mutan because it's not something new. And therefore, even Rabbi Yonah wouldn't treat gelatin in a permissive way. Omnam, but, lehalacha, when it comes to actual halacha, I'm actually per- feel that I should permit gelatin. Something fascinating. He throws a curveball here. I don't agree with all of you for permitting gelatin because it's a new creation. But I agree that it's permitted for a completely different reason. I believe that the bones are only in certain contexts. But not in this context. They're not a problem. And he goes through three reasons why he explains that. If you look at me on page 11 on the right side, he says here, Kayadua, it's also known, gelatin is made of bones, after they are dried, like for two years, he says, in the heat of the sun, in India. So Professor Bramsey is talking here about a very specific type of gelatin. You should know. The first thing that anybody will tell you, look at all these rabbis permitted gelatin. They'll tell you, no, see, you're not doing anything right. You're applying their perspective on gelatin of yesterday to the gelatin of today. Gelatin today is not sitting out in the sun for two years in India. Gelatin today is a very fast process. They throw it through chemicals. It turns to gelatin. It's not, a, it's not what he's talking about. And therefore, you think, I saw yesterday one rabbi say that all rabbis who permit gelatin are copy-paste rabbis. They copy the cases of the rabbi. They paste it to incorrect scenarios. As much as I don't uh, appreciate being called a copy-paste rabbi, I will tell you that there's a reason why we believe that these things still apply, because we analyze these halakhot and apply them also to the reality in front of us, and I'll explain to you in a minute. And therefore, He says they're so dry that they don't give off any flavor from the meat that they absorb. But he says, even if you ever took a dry bone, 
and it's not so dry, it's still a little bit moist, and also likely does not give off flavor. And now we have to think about whether or not he's correct about the gelatin that we have today. I'm going to jump ahead, source ahead, and I'm going to come backwards. If you look with me on page 13, in the left, in the right column, He first quotes the Achiezer, Shut Achiezer, we're going to see soon, who shows why it's not a problem of Ma'amid. If you care so much about Ma'amid, you're welcome to look there. On the left side of the page, he says here, the often say that the way that we make gelatin today, that the chemicals that we use on these bones, phosphor, acids, I'm not telling you gelatin is healthy, by the way. I'm telling you is that it's mutat, correct? The, the chemicals they use are so harsh, they destroy completely this bone. It doesn't give off any flavor. It's not prohibited at all. And therefore tells, the Tzitha the Ezra tells us that even if you don't wait two years in the sun of India, the chemical process that is used today to make gelatin accomplishes the same thing. It so much destroys what the original bones and maybe leftover meat is on those bones that it's already considered something that is so dry that it's not a problem with kashrut anymore. But Rabbi Cheska Abramsky has a different calculation. Even though he feels that gelatin should be mutav, he says, no, there's a political consideration why you should not permit gelatin. It's a political consideration. On the bottom of page 12, this is all true in the halakha, that gelatin is permissible. It doesn't seem there's a prohibition. But practically, we have to make sure that by teaching people this halakha, we don't cause them to violate halakha. So there's a camp of people that mock Jewish tradition. And they say, look at these rabbis. Whatever they decide is kosher is kosher. They can even take pig bones and make them kosher. Look at them. But they can't let us do this or that. He says, there's a group of people that mock all of the rulings of the rabbis. And maybe we shouldn't permit gelatin so we don't um, reinforce their stereotype or their attitude that rabbis do whatever they want with halakha, that we can even make non-kasher animals kasher. He says, gelatin, because people do not properly understand what is gelatin. And many of the Jewish people think of the Orthodox Jewish community that thinks that gelatin is pig. That's how I was raised. A gelatin is a pig. There's no difference if gelatin falls to your foot or if an actual uh, porky the pig jumps into your foot. It doesn't make a difference. It's the same thing. In fact, I think the quintessential, we probably got this from the Muslims. The Muslims are very particular not to have anything derived from pigs. And so they have lists of which toothpaste have gelatin, all kinds of things like that. And the Jews jumped on the bandwagon. They didn't properly understand halakha. There's a difference between a pig and bones even that come from a pig. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. He said, because they don't know the process of gelatin, the Jewish community thinks, Every Jewish person thought until today that gelatin is prohibited. Says the Bichas Gabramski, and now that you come and tell them, some say, not just because they don't know, they even added more. They even think that the gelatin is really just the marrow that comes from the inside of the bones, and it's real meat. And it's not, it's not a, it's not a false worry.
He said, and therefore it's not, uh, it's not unreasonable to assume that if we teach people that gelatin is kasher, they will think, oh, look at these rabbis. They do whatever they want with halakha. And if you look on the top of page 12, even though it's completely permissible the halakha, but practically, if we start teaching people these dangerous things like gelatin is kasher, then they'll start to think that rabbis are all about twisting halakha to fit their own needs. And that is too dangerous for us to sacrifice just to be able to make gelatin kasher. Now you see the beginning of a political struggle. We're fighting against the Jewish people. We're the rabbinic establishment. The Jewish people are not to be trusted with halakha. When we begin to teach them halakha, they'll begin to think, oh, the rabbis do whatever they want because they're amihalakha. And maybe, I'm not judging because I rubbed the hefak, I think he was dealing with a crowd that maybe you couldn't educate. But that's why I'm speaking to the chavura, I'm not speaking to the uneducated crowd. I'm speaking to people who are doing everything possible a few times a week, taking hours out of their day and their life to learn Torah. So when it comes to you, the halakha, why should I be concerned to tell you, I'm not afraid that you are a mehavit. You're not a mehavit. You have the capability of sitting down and understanding nuance in halakha. So we're telling you the truth. Page 14. So, so far we've said, maybe it's permissible because it's dry like wood. Yes? The next we said, maybe it's permissible, it's similar to musk. What is musk? It's a new, it's a new creation completely. And that's the reason why it's permissible. And now, three, we're going to go down a slightly different road. Hagaperitz uh, understands this to be also connected to gelatin. And I'm showing you on source one on page 14. Sheretz Saruf. A burnt sheret. Give me an example of a sheret. What is a sheret? Locust. I can hear you. A locust. A locust. But there are some kosher ones. Okay, let's say a non-kosher okay, locust. A non-kosher locust, okay? Sheret uh, taruf. You find a burnt one. You can eat a completely burned sheret. It's prohibited to you, but it's come, now it's completely burned, you can eat it. Because it's considered dirt, dust. It's not considered a, a non-kasher creature. Now that it's burnt, it's permissible for healing purposes, not to save someone's life necessarily, but like you take it as extra vitamins or whatever else. You mix it in. I saw people brushing their teeth with charcoal. Same idea. Yeah, because people have something they jump on and they want to do People used to want to whiten their teeth. Now they're blackening their teeth. Everybody's doing whatever they want. Just pray that you should keep your teeth for as long as you can. Number two, it's permissible to burn a sheretz, says the Ramah. You can go and take a sheretz and burn it in order to eat it for refuah's sake. Even somebody who's not going to die if they don't eat it. It's just a regular, you're taking it as vitamins except for things that were used for idol worship, like wood of Avodah Zarah, because wood of Avodah Zarah were never allowed to use it. But you take a sheret, I don't know, you decide, scorpion, dried scorpion, grounded up into tablets, why? Says the Shach in Source 3, that this applies to many more things than you might think, even the things that you're forbidden from getting benefit from, and uh, that's where the shaft extends it. 
Have a parents here quotes a book called the Erech Hashulchan. Have you heard of the Erech Hashulchan? Not the Aruch Hashulchan. Aruch Hashulchan is the Bechil Michal Halevi Epstein, was an Ashkenazi rabbi of Sephardic descent who lived in Europe. I'm talking about the Erech Hashulchan. Anyone heard of him? Just a few weeks ago, I said Shachiano. I was able to finally purchase the set in America. For years, I wanted the set. I couldn't find it. And I got it. Oh, Hashem. Oh, Hashem. Rabit Chak Tayyib is his name. Rabit Chak Tayyib was a rabbi in Algeria. Er Hashulchan, let's put it this way. Haraperet says that the rulings of the Er Hashulchan are so impossibly stringent all the time. That's always in the Kiyah. That when you see the Er Hashulchan say that something is permissible, run with it. To just do whatever he said, you could do it. Because if he didn't find a way to make it prohibited, it's because there's no way to make it prohibited. Haraperet's quotes here from the Er Hashulchan. I wanted to bring you the original, but I didn't have a digital copy of it. You can intentionally take something that is forbidden and be pogamic by burning it or any other way in which you are pogamic in order to eat it. And Makes sense that the vow that is not kasher, that you are pogam, it's not any other bitul, so there's a rule, you can't nullify it. For, you can't nullify it. Now it's a pigima. This pigima is mutal. Haraperetz understands this, that even if the bones are prohibited, even if the gelatin is a problem, but it's like this burned insect or scorpion. It's something that is considered permissible now in the state in which it is in, and not only for sick people, but also for anybody. And this brings me to a much more fundamental conversation. I know that I'm only 15 pages in, to 42 pages. So about the time we're going to start running soon. There's a big conversation regarding bones. Are bones even forbidden in the first place? Non-kasha animals are forbidden, but are the bones a problem? The Torah says, Do not eat from their flesh. Don't touch their carcasses. They're temeim for you. Sifra says, only from the flesh, but not of the bones or the sinews or the hooves. All of those things are not forbidden to you. You can eat those things. The bones of a non-kasher animal are kasherim. Oh, the Torah only forbid the flesh of the non-kasher animal. Don't go out of the storm by bone broth. Don't run with this. Wait, wait, we're going to have a conversation here. Maran, therefore, tells you the halakha in source 3. Chatichat nevelah. A non-kasher piece of meat. Shiyeshba basar. that has flesh. Vatsamot and bones. You are making your chicken soup. And in there fell a non-kasher bone with meat on it. So now you have a bone with some meat on it that fell into your chicken soup. And you need to do the math. Is there 60 times more chicken soup than the meat and the bones that fell in? Says Maran, you don't have to worry about the bone. The only thing you need to nullify is the meat. Not only do you just have to nullify the meat, but the bone is kasher enough that you can count it as part of your 60 to nullify the meat that it's attached to. Meaning the bone that fell into the soup is so kasher that you can use it to nullify the meat that fell in with it. That's what Maran writes Of course the, the kasher bones count. The, the marrow in there, that's not kasher, that counts with the non-kasher stuff. The pot doesn't count to nullify in 60 in either direction. The Ramah doesn't like this so much. 
The Ramam, he says that some are stringent not to count the non-kasher bones as part of the 60. That's too far. Uvimakom have said, but if you're going to lose money, you can rely on Maran who is permitting because that's really the halakha. Even though he prefers not to, you can rely on this one. What does have said? I one day we'll write an article. The Ramam mentions have said in a case of loss, in a case of loss, in a case of great loss. I don't recall where, maybe a Taz somewhere I saw. A great loss is like a few chicken livers. That's a serious financial damage to a person. How much do chicken livers cost you? A few dollars? You're going to lose a few dollars of money. You can argue one is $10, $20. That's enough for the Ramah to say, follow Maran. It's a cheap price to pay, the follow Maran. Maran writes in the Beit Yosef in Source 5 that he gets the Hanakha from the Ramban and the Rashba. That they both say that the bones of the animal are kesherim enough that they even count as the 60 to nullify the meat of felon. The Rambam seems to disagree. The Rambam writes that it's Afal Pishuasu, Hariza Patu, Mitreshenadu Unachila, Venmitstavim of Basar de Kezait. Again, the Rambam is consistent in his attitude that the bones are only permissible in the way, they're not that it's permissible, but because you're not eating them the way they usually are eaten, that's why it's permissible. Not because the bone itself is actually permissible, like we discussed earlier in the, in the earlier Tishuvot. So here's an argument, Marana Rambam. There are those who try to make this work for the Rambam also. So in source seven, uh, the Chavodat is trying to make gelatin permissible also according to the Rambam. And he says essentially that the bones themselves, even though they're asurim to the Rambam, but they don't give off flavor. And because of that, they wouldn't actually make food prohibited because yes, the bone is asu. But it's in such a way that it does not give up flavor, like the ghee, which is not prohibited. In source 8, we see something similar. Uh, the Chavodat says that moist bones that still have moisture, they're forbidden from the rule, everything that comes out of the forbidden is forbidden. It came from an animal, it's forbidden to us. Even, and therefore, they don't have the ability, let's say according to the Ramah, to nullify in 60. But they also don't have the ability to make a mixture prohibited. So bones, in this understanding, are midway. They're not kasher, they're not asu, but they're not able to make anything else not kasher. According to this, gelatin wouldn't be a problem even in that direction. In source 9, Rebichayim Oizer, that's what they call him, Rebichayim Ozer Gurjinsky. Rebichayim Ozer was a very unique chacham. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, Rebichayim Ozer was once traveling across a border in Europe and he had to cross the border and they wouldn't let him into Russia. I don't know one of these stories. They didn't let him into that country because he didn't have a profession. They didn't let um, immigrants that didn't have professions. They said, what are you? He said, I'm a rabbi. Uh, he said, yeah, but where's your certificate of rabbi? I don't have a certificate of rabbi. Have, yeah, he has a certificate of rabbi. So they say he telegrammed the Chavetz Chaim that he needs semicha and the Chavetz Chaim sent him a semicha via telegram and then he was able to pass the border. But it's a... Uh, when... Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, made Aliyah in Israel. And you know me, I'm not from the Gush, but I respect Hamadei Chalim for where they come from. When he made Aliyah to Israel, the son of Rabbi Soloveitchik, they told him that he doesn't have semicha from the Rabbanut, so he can't be considered a rabbi in Israel. So he said, oh, so what do I do? What do I need to do to become a rabbi? You have to take all the exams, like seven years worth of exams. Then come, give me all the exams. He sat down for a few hours, he answered all the exams, and then he became a rabbi in Israel. So if you... If I don't know, if Rabbi Moshe Feinstein would make Aliyah to Israel, they would make him pass the Semichai exam also, so he could be considered a rabbi in Israel. Rabbi Chaim Ozer wants to give two reasons 
why gelatin does not prohibit the mixture that it falls into. The first is because it became powder. And this powder is like any other dust or dirt that doesn't make something prohibited. And the second, in source nine, is that the Rambam only prohibits moist bones. But his understanding is that even the Rambam would permit dried bones in a mixture of food. You don't have to accept his reading, but this is a possible reading. I bring you now to page 18, where the debate goes on. In the United States of America, and likely in most English-speaking countries, the gelatin is considered completely prohibited. Even though I've now brought you, and there were intentionally, I brought you so many Ashkenazi rabbis, intentionally. Look how many Ashkenazi chachamim permit gelatin. And not because we're relying on names. Then now this is why I led them to permit gelatin, each one for different reasons. Nonetheless, the Dumas Shafaitin says that gelatin is not permissible at all. And this has become the standard matter of halakha in American kashrut agencies. And I'm assuming it's like that elsewhere in the world. Um, the state of Israel has two levels of kashrut from the chief rabbinate, one that permits gelatin and one that doesn't. Chacham uh, said in Source 2 on page 19, has a lengthy conversation regarding gelatin. It's perhaps one of the most foundational conversations on gelatin that exists in halakha. This is complemented by a text that I did not have in digital form. If you look in a book called Masa Ovadiyah. Masa Ovadiyah are speeches that Chacham Ovadiyah Yosef gave at rabbinic assemblies, printed by Mossad and Kuk. There's a, maybe a 17 or 18 page uh, speech that Chacham Ovadiyah Yosef gave, in which he also very clearly explains gelatin and why he believes that gelatin is permissible according to Halakha. If you are excited to read things that are very long, I brought you the whole Teshuvah in full so that you don't have to go buy yourself a set of Yabiyah but you're welcome to just keep the source sheet and look at the entire Teshuvah yourself. And that's why on page 27, Kacham of Yosef says, gelatin, the gelatin, that is permissible. And he says he remembers other Chachamim. And that's what Rav Waldenberg also says, his dear friend Rav Waldenberg. And that is the simple conclusion of the Halakha in his opinion. There's a Teshuvah that I have in a PDF. I attached it to my Google Classroom. Though those of you in the Chavua didn't get it, but I can send it maybe to more who can forward it to you. Rabbi Chaim David Shalush. Adam Shalom one of my favorite Sephardic Haramim of this generation. My master passed away not so long ago. Rechaim David Shalush has a Tishumah about gelatin in which he prohibits gelatin entirely. And so it's not fair to say this is a Sephardic or Ashkenazi argument. And if you wanted to see the logic, I simply wasn't able to bring it for you here because I don't have access to a digital uh, format of it. Uh, but I will be able to send you a PDF if anybody wants of the writings of Rabbi David Shalush. My rabbi, Mori Harad Yaakov Peretz, in the year 2000 and 19, a number of rabbis got together, and I'm sorry for speaking about this on camera to the Chavua. A number of rabbis got together in the neighboring city of San Diego, where I used to teach Shirei Torah, and uh, they started harassing my students in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. Made their lives quite difficult. And all we did was we would meet regularly and study Shukhan That's literally what we did. We sat and learned Shukhan And that became the most controversial thing you could possibly imagine in the world. Today, you can study Avodah Zarah, you can study Christianity, you can, you can, you can meditate and do goat yoga in the middle of the Bera Knesset, but, but, you should study Shukhanon. I want to share a story, but I don't want you, I don't want those who will listen to disqualify me for sharing the story. Rabbi Saul Lieberman, who's a very unique personality, I'm not a student of Rabbi Saul Lieberman. I don't know that I even own books of Rabbi Saul Lieberman. Tosefta Kitruta, he spent his life dedicated to the study of the Tosefta. He was the Rosh Hashiva of the Jewish Theological Seminary, which started as a Spartan institution. 
and then was taken over by the conservative uh, movement. And unfortunately, many people don't know the Sephardic origins of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. Um, he was unique, and he was a European rabbi who became a rabbi, knowingly or unknowingly, of the conservative movement. Uh, Professor Mark Shapiro, who I believe started the Chavarab before, he has a book, a small book dedicated called Saul Lieberman and Orthodox. It's a fascinating read about the evolution of orthodoxy and what really makes someone orthodox or not. Saul Lieberman once wrote a letter to his Bedadim saying, I see that you are afraid of ruling in this matter of halakha. He says, don't worry. He says, the orthodox will never blame you for innovating in halakha. They will only blame you for teaching what it actually says inside of the books of halakha. That's what Rebbe Salim said. And uh, the Rambam tells us, you must accept the truth from whoever says it. So these rabbis got together and they decided that they're going to get me ousted from Los Angeles. It didn't work. Bo Hashem, uh, I have many friends from Los Angeles and uh, many good people in Los Angeles. Uh, it didn't happen. And the next move they decided to do was to disqualify me at a higher level. And they reached out to Maria Rav Yaakov Peretz. And they told him, you have a student here in America. You don't speak English. You don't understand the things that you say. He's teaching very dangerous things here in America. He's telling people all about gelatin that it's kasher and all kinds of things. They, they made a list of 12 things that I've taught in public that are absolute violations of Harafan. I'm embarrassed to tell you that most of them were Sephardic rabbis. And uh, Peretz's reaction was twofold. One, who do you think taught him all of these halachot? He learned them from me. Don't tell me that you're ratting out my tummy to me. This is exactly what I taught him. It's good that he's teaching them in public. The second thing is that I never saw a group of rabbis so shamelessly showing the world how ignorant they are of the basic tenets of halakha. He said, you went from being rabbis at the beginning of the letter to being amehavits by the end of the letter. And uh, unfortunately, that's the reality in which we live. Halakheretz is exactly all of everything I've told you today is summarized by Halakheretz here. Halakheretz brings three things that are kishirim based on this conversation. The first, tolaim adumim. They tell you about insect coloring that is put inside of food. And they're right. Carmine, for example, is an insect coloring that is found in many juices and other such things. They are permissible because they've been dried and turned into a powder and now that color is food. It's permissible. By the way, the chief rabbinate also uses carmine in their food. The non-mehadrin line uses regular carmine and the mehadrin line waits for 12 months for the carmine to age. Now it's dry. And then they uh, use the carmine in their food. Dam taish shinikash. Taish is a goat. Dam taish shinikash nityabesh. Dried goat blood that congealed and dried. No hagim no We have a custom of eating it. This is the chida who tells you. What is this used for? To color foods, for example. You use paprika to turn things red. You can use dried uh, goat blood. Now, blood is prohibited, but now that it's dried, it's permissible. And then Arapelot writes here that gelatin also is permissible, even if it comes from Nivelot, Utrefot, Ubehemotimeot. One of the rabbis there wanted to say all of the conversation about gelatin is only from cows and kasher animals that are not slaughtered properly. But pigs, pigs, how could it be? Uh, also pigs. So all of the animals. Mutarin, they are permissible. And that's our understanding of Halakha. I quoted to you from Rabbi Eliezer Malamid. Rabbi Eliezer Malamed, I did not learn his Bedemidach. He's authored a terrific set of books, Pirinei Halafan. I said, I don't agree with Rabbi Eliezer Malamed on everything. I don't have to agree. He doesn't have to, he's bigger than me, so I don't have to, he doesn't have to answer me anything. I have also personal issues with the philosophies and the worldview of the camp, perhaps, that Rabbi Eliezer Malamed belongs to. 
but is a rabbi who has spent his entire life not just teaching Torah, but making halakha accessible to as many human beings as possible in, in a pleasant way, in a, in a beautiful way, but also in a way that is, is rigorous. Sources. He wrote a Pnei Halakha, which I'll tell you, sounds almost like a modern Beit Yosef. All of the Halakha. If you don't own a set, today they're already translating these volumes into English. And he is so much wanting to share this to with the world that it's, it's available on Safari for free. You're welcome to just go and read and download and he doesn't even want to make the money off of those books. And Rebbe Lezim Malavid has recently become the object of much scorn and ridicule in the modern Orthodox uh, religious Zionist community in Israel uh, for two things. He has adopted a Sephardic approach to conversion, and that made him already a target a long time ago. And he's stood behind many very unique Sephardic rabbis who deal with the topics of conversion. Whether I agree or not is not relevant. And the second, in the last few years, Eliezer Malamed has worked very hard to make inroads with the reform and conservative Jewish communities. And you can say he's not doing enough. Some say he's doing too much. He's felt that the what's tried in America, what tried in the United Kingdom, and what tried was tried in Europe of banning and separating and staying away. It didn't work. Ultimately, that didn't work in helping the Jewish community stay together. And he wanted a different approach. If we would be able to sit and to meet and to dialogue and also not agree with each other, there has to be a way for the rabbinate of Israel to welcome non-Orthodox leaders to Israel, while also not compromising on the integrity of the halakhic system of Israel. And you can argue, it's very bold, and maybe he's wrong. doesn't make a difference. He's made a tremendous Kiddush Hashem in this regard. And what happened is that all of his colleagues ganged up against him very recently, and they've banned his books. And unfortunately, many Shibots have thrown his books out the windows. They've burned them. They've got, I'm talking about current events right now. Uh, and this is a sad thing. I'm bringing him here just to give him a little bit of respect. He mentions a few different, the reasons why those who prohibit prohibit, why those who permit are permissive. And then at the end, he says, the Maaseh, the bottom line, those who wish to be lenient are able to. You're arguing ultimately about something that is rabbinically prohibited. It is not biblically prohibited. And because of that, we have so many reasons to permit something rabbinic. And the halakha is that whenever you have a doubt as to a rabbinic law, you are lenient. If somebody wants to be stringent, they can. And he said also, maybe nowadays it's better to buy gelatin only with a hechshel. Fine, he says that. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with a rabbinic law. And as a rabbinic law, it's amazing why so many people make such a commotion over this halakha. On page 29, I brought you a tshuva from Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg about gelatin capsules. So gelatin eating is permissible. How much more so swallowing, which is not even the way in which you would eat something. Swallowing isu is permissible, especially for healing people. We'll led to a big debate on page 29, source 2, and on page 31, source 3, is something that I wish we'd had more time to think about, but is the sausage skins. And you might never eat this again after you hear what I'm going to tell you, but aside from whatever, um, maybe already pagu meat is inside of your hot dogs or sausages. There is a method in which the intestines of animals are dried and then used almost like a plastic casing to surround the meat and make it into a sausage. Likely, you know what I'm talking about, between sausage links or things like that. And the question is, whether or not you can use those in kasher food and use the non-kasher intestines of animals that are dried and processed to hold kosher meat to make kosher sausages and hot dogs and the like. And there's a machlokah here between the rabbis, whether it's like gelatin and permissible or whether it's like gelatin and prohibited. Famously, Chacham Ovedei Yosef was permissible, uh, per, he permissive about this. Uh, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi never agreed. 
I think lately the last two chief rabbis were able, it was like a deal of the century. They're finding about very important things like the skins on sausages. And they, that's what they get paid for. And this whole approach was come down. They agreed that Israel would allow non-kasher sausage skins to be used for the kasher line of the chief rabbinate. And the Mahadrin line wouldn't have these sausage. Mahadrin people, they don't have to eat the sausage skins. But this would be our attitude that also in a situation like sausage skins, these things would be mutarim. So about I to conclude, gelatin, in my opinion, is kasher in all of its forms, in all of its shapes, in all of its sizes. And there are reasons why somebody would want to avoid it. I'm not going to fight you. I don't have, there's no mitzimati gelatin. To the contrary, the foods in which gelatin is usually found are not so healthy for you anyways. So it could be that there's a mitzvah to stay away from those foods entirely, regardless of whether the gelatin is there or not. But I wanted to close with something else. And I have a few more minutes with you. And if you would give me those few more minutes, I would really appreciate being able to sit with you and, and talk about this. Closing thoughts on page 33. We've been learning together now for the last eight weeks. And likely, those of you who have come to learn with me have known me from before. And if you haven't, you've pretty much gotten the scoop that we're all about kashrut. We're going to learn about kashrut. And I already told you at the beginning of this series that for me, kashrut is not that important. I mean, of course, it's important to keep the laws of kashrut. But unlike other Jewish denominations who the whole day spend their life talking about kashrut, if you come to my community on a Shabbat, you likely will never hear us talk about kashrut at all. If you sit in one of our shilim, we barely broached it. We learned it once. And yeah, so was, how much can you talk about gummy bears? But there are some people, their whole Judaism is about Cheetos and Doritos and gummy bears. This is the whole religion is about this. And I understand and I respect and I know that that sometimes is the sensation when we're choosing, the, choosing these topics. Yeah, there was an idea to be a little sensational and bring topics that are hot topics in the Jewish community. But the reason I still deal with matters of kashrut it's for a few reasons. One of them I mentioned at the end of last class. Some of you resonated with it. And that is I see kashrut being used as one of the greatest ways to oppress people. I see Jewish communities that are held hostage by people who are authorities that don't allow for the people to actually know what halakha says. And because of that, people are captives. They're literally captives. People lose money and they don't have to buy foods that they don't even need to be kashrut in the first place. It's relationships friendships, families are broken up over other people's control and manipulation over halakha. But there are more reasons than that. And I want to read to you some sources, and with this I'll end today's issue. Halaparets is source one on page 33. Explains to us the philosophy behind this. Call them, this is before I begin writing to you. Abi Akan, I wish to share here the feeling of suffering of upright Torah scholars. We are bewildered. Parents is an old guard. So I'm bewildered to see the Jewish approach that people of our generation are taking, the improper roads they are walking on. It is the numerous opinions, and the doubts, and the concerns, which pass, far past any boundary of normality and truth. You live in a generation that is afraid who are afraid to rule the same we've been learning for generations. And they are concerned of some later opinion that Maran didn't care about. 
והמחמירים ומוסיפים חומרה על חומרה ונכשלים בכולה ובקולות שיוצאים מתוך חומרתם. אז הם מייד סטרינג'נסי, אפון סטרינג'נסי, אפון סטרינג'נסי, אז זה אולטימטלי, אליד סטרינג'נסיס, ומה קורה מכל זה? התקיים בנו בדיוק מה שחזו חז"ל ברוח חודשם ואמרו, ואז פולפילד אנס מה שהרבי עשה ברוח הקודש. עתידה תורה שתשתכח מישראל. Our Rabbi tell us in Masechet Shabbat that one day the Torah will be forgotten from the Jewish people. Rashbi says, what does that mean? Yishotatu levakesh devar Adonai v'lo yimtzau. Amos, the prophet, tells us they will, they will grapple to find the words of Hashem and they will not find them. What does that mean? What does it mean the Torah will be forgotten? Shelo yimtzau halacha berua umishna berua v'mokom echad. People will no longer find clear, decided, simple halachot. in one place. Everything will be so complicated that halakha will lose its clarity. And because of this, that type of generation, even though they think they learned Torah, that generation has already lost the Torah. The Torah has already been forgotten. Now, my parents, as I'm sitting here, looking at a Jewish community that is so afraid to just do things the right way because of this opinion and that opinion and the next opinion, then how much can you live your life like that? The Gemara... Talmud Babri, Masechah Tandurin tells us, Minayin shekol ha-mosif gorea. How do you know that anybody who adds to the Torah is really taking away from the Torah? Shneemar, he tells us the story of the Garden of Eden. The Chadosh Baruch Hu says, don't eat from the tree. And what do they say? No, also don't touch from the tree. They added a fence, no? And when the fence was broken, she touches the tree. She says, oh, if I can touch the tree, I can also eat the tree. This story teaches us that adding a fence to the Torah can actually undermine the entire Torah completely and get us thrown out of the Eden. So our parents asked in source three, but our rabbis taught us to make a fence for the Torah. So what was wrong with the Dama Rishon al-Chava? What was wrong with making that fence for the Torah? And he gives two answers. The first, that when you add fences to the Torah, you have to know what is the Torah and what is the fence. What is biblical law? What is rabbinic law? What does it mean? What is an old minhag? What is a new minhag? What is a fabricated minhag? You have to learn halakha with nuance, with sophistication. It can't be, oh, it's forbidden. What is for, forbidden from who? From the Torah? Forbidden from the rabbis? Forbidden because someone 300 years ago in Poland or Morocco said something? What is going to, who decides forbidden? The word forbidden, what does it mean? You're allowed to add humrot. We have to know what is the fence and what is the Torah. And when you know, then you know you won't make a mistake that the Chavad did. You won't say, oh, I touched the tree, I'm fine, so I can eat it from, from a tree. You'll know that. I touched the tree, there was nothing wrong with it. Eating the tree was the problem. The second, there are certain mitzvot that are so difficult already, you don't need to make them harder. Or certain mitzvot that are so stringent already. People are so careful, for example, that Tarat Mishpacha. It's a thing that Jewish people take very seriously, even those who are not fully committed to observe Mitzvah Halakha. So why do you have to make it already more complicated? They're already taking care of the rules. Why? Because we live in a generation where adding chumot on chumot on chumot is the norm already. Halaperetzo calls out Kashrut completely in source form. And I wish I would have added one more source here from his newest book that we published with Shiviti for him. Uh, but I, I didn't have time to put it in the source sheet. Mechila. Halaperetzo writes, Bismanenu nowadays, Rabu Badatz from Kashrut. We have multiple Kashrut agencies. Badatz means Badin Tzedek. Everybody can call themselves a Badatz. Kol Kibbutz Anashim, what has happened? Every group of people, they say, my hechsev is a good hechsev. Fine, everybody thinks their hechsev is a good hechsev. We got it. But they also, they say that other people's kashrut is not good, which is not true. It's okay you say your kashrut is great. 
But how do you say their kashrut is not great? From when? V'na'asa Am Yisrael mefozaun forad. So let's count all the things that happen. Am Yisrael becomes separated from each other. Who said these words? Haman. Haman told Achashverosh the king, the Jewish people, Yisrael Echad mefozaun forad ben Amin. There's one nation that's scattered and dispersed. They have a different faith than everybody else. The Jewish people become separated because of these kashrut politics that exist from these agencies. People cannot go visit each other and be hosted by each other. And we fall, we stumble because we lose out. We lose out on the ability to fulfill the basic mitzvah of Abraham Avinu, the, the, the was his life. To host other people, to do achnasat ochim, to have guests, to eat with each other. And this type of kashrut politics causes us to distance ourselves from the love of other human beings. It also diminishes our humanity. A child becomes observant and goes to his mother's home. His mother says, My dear son, can I make you a cup of tea? He says, Oh, sorry, mom, I can't eat in your house. Humanity, that's a human being eats in his mother's house. It, we distance ourselves from that. We lose out of the mitzvah, biblical mitzvot, of to love your fellow like yourself. And these people who think that they are so particular about kashrut, they're so mehadrim. Aside from the mitzvot they stay away from, they actually do an avirah. They make food prices so high that they are stealing money from Jewish people who don't have money. We had a guy come through here, collect, he only eats matzah shemurah and pesach, which is fascinating. Humar. He only eats handmade shemurah matzah. It was a chassid who came through here. And he's begging, I beg, I said, let me buy you matzot. I can get you boxes of machine made matzot. I'll get them for you. No, I can't eat those on pesach. That's your friend, you're collecting in my house a few days before Pesach because you don't have money. When he was young, didn't have money. He only ate machine matzot. Hey, he can't afford it. Who, who can afford it? Today in America, you can buy handmade matzot. Forget uh, soft matzot. 50, 60, 70 dollars a pound. Do you know that? Now we sell matzot, soft matzot, but it's a fundraiser for the Kila. It's not a selling. Really, if you come work here, you get them for free. But this uh, matzot, so he came, he got matzot. Listen to the story. I managed to get him a box, a special box with three matzot shemurot for his seder. Like, it was a special box. I got it. He comes back to me the next day. Rabbi, do you have another box? Come on, like, how much can you? I don't even buy matzot shemurot like that. For a I said, what happened to your box yesterday? He said, the driver who drives the collectors around, he takes a 50% cut of anything we bring in. And not only does he take 50% of our money, but he took one and a half matzot from my box of three matzot. By the way, that collector, not the collector, the man who drives him around, he's not allowed on my bit of currency. Last time he came here, I told him he's welcome to leave. He can do Teshuvah publicly now, or he can leave. And if he ever comes back, we'll have a restraining order on him. Not afraid. How do you steal matzot from a person that has food? But this guy is even worse. Whoever made that chasid a chasid didn't teach him, my dear friend, if he doesn't have matzot, you can imagine his wife doesn't have clothing. You can imagine his kids don't have bread. So what are you busy? Teach people what they, they're able to do. They hold these people hostages. And there are those who rely blindly on these kashrut agencies. 
הם אברכי הישיבות, they are the yeshiva students and kolel scholars, שפרנסתם מעוטה, that are famously very low on פרנסה, ואינם יודעים הלכה ברורה, and what's also known about students of the yeshivot is they don't know הלכה. So they're poor and they don't know halakha. That's how it is. Two rules, you know, meet a yeshiva student, ask him any question you want. What the, the I don't know, whatever, Akiva Eger, right, the brisk arabs, but you ask him, how do you wash your hands in the morning? No idea even which page Shukhanu will define it. These people rely on the kashur agencies to tell them what is right. They have a rule in their hands. Whoever is stricter is better. And they end up buying food only from the most expensive hachari, and they lose out money for their families, for their children, because they think this is what they have to do. How long can you be quiet? How can you be, you say, don't get involved with politics, don't say anything, it's fighting, I'm looking at the poor people who are suffering. I'm looking at the people who work hard, and they come to Pesach, and it's three days before Pesach, and they've already spent their entire month's salary buying food for Pesach, and there's still three days to go. People who work, how could it be? How long can we let it be that way? Not a matter of, this is a matter of you must stand up and do what is correct. There's a philosophy behind this. It's not that we choose to get involved with Kashrut because we care about gummy bears. We care about Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael should be able to take, there was a famous Ashkenazi in Chacham, I don't remember now who, my wife told me the story, that there was a blood libel in Europe. And he said that the people who are responsible for the blood libel are the rabbis. The rabbis who steal the blood from people by making kasher food so expensive that they're the ones who bring about blood libels around Israel. They're the original blood libel. They steal from the dam, from the the, remember the, the Mara says that somebody who fasts, he loses his blood. That's a kapara for him. He said, the people don't have the money to buy food anymore. This is a halakha. Even the Mishnah Bawa quotes it. It's before the holiday. And fish is too expensive. Fish is too expensive. So what do the Chachamim have to do? Why is it too expensive? Because the Jewish stores know that everybody's coming to buy kasher fish. So they, they make the prices high. The job of the Chachamim is to say it's forbidden to buy fish from the kasher stores. You're only allowed to buy fish from the Goyim. To break the market. That's the halakha. That was a famous Ashkenazi rabbi. My name is slipping me right now. Somebody once came to fight with the rabbi. You boycotted our stores. How could it be? We're not getting it. Because you break the prices. Lower the prices. We'll let people shop in your stores. Maybe it was the Mishan Bukham Maybe it was the Chavit It could be. And on the way out, the rabbi tells us, hey, my dear friend, just remember, you can't even buy fish from yourself. That's how much you're, you're violating halakha. You, yeah, you have to go buy your own fish from the Goyim. And perhaps you'll allow me just a couple more minutes to share with you the last source. I'm not going to read it to you. Rabbi Kuk is a very unique Chacham. And he dealt with an issue we're right about Pesach now. But in Tel Aviv, Yafo, where he had his Betadim, there was a Jewish man who owned a sesame oil factory. They made sesame seed oil. Now, there was a big debate whether sesame seeds are kitniyot or not. It's miraculous to me how certain things that didn't exist when people started observing kitniyot, and now became kitniyot all of a sudden. So, like, there are new things. Moshe finds it, for example. Peanuts are not kitniyot, because in Russia, we didn't know what peanuts were, so how could they be kitniyot? Uh, sesame seeds, some believe, fall into that category. This man said, I can't shut down my factory for eight days. If nobody will buy my oil, then I won't be able to survive the economic crisis here. And so, Ravkuk uh, said, watch, sesame oil is kasher for the following reason. Even if it is kidneyot, but it's not. He didn't believe it. Even if it is kidneyot, what's the deal? Even if it is kidneyot, 
because it's cold pressed with no liquids, it's dry processing, you extract the oil, even grains that didn't come in contact with water are kasher on Pesach. How much more so something that is kitniot that never came in contact with water, it's going to be kasher for Pesach? How can you treat sesame seeds more stringently than you treat chametz itself? And so he permitted this. There's a group of rabbis in Yerushalayim, the Badat, Sedah, Chalabit, they uh, decided to wage a war against Halafkuk about this. And that if he's a slippery slope, he's allowing sesame seeds. That means soon they're going to be the Chametz on Pesach, and they went to war. And there are letters in his book, Orach Mishpat. I think that's what it's called. Uh, he discusses the uh, Orach Mishpat. He discusses all back and forth. There's do- uh, maybe half a dozen letters between them, uh, back and forth. And Halafkuk says something fascinating. He says, you know why we have to permit the sesame oil? Not just because it's permissible. And not just because you can't treat a minhag more than you treat a halakha. And not just because you shouldn't stick your nose in the business of the bedin over here. This is but for more reasons than that. It says, I know this generation. Says, I know this generation. And this generation has tremendous distrust of Torah scholars. Tremendous distrust of rabbis. And when they see us prohibiting things all the time, they just say, ah, anything you ask the rabbi, he'll tell you no. But if we tell them, this is mutal, you can eat this on Pesach, they will say, wait a second, this rabbi is actually teaching us halakha? They'll listen to us, he said. It will restore the, uh, rabbinate, the, uh, the dignity of the rabbinate in the eyes of the people. And then when we tell them that something is prohibited, that's really prohibited, they'll finally listen to us. Because they know that we trust them to tell them the truth. We're telling them the truth and people want to hear the truth. So this generation that you think is heretical and they're about to violate all halakha, so you can't give them an inch, you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. This generation is on the verge of collapse. And they're on the verge of collapse because they don't trust the rabbis. And frankly, rabbis, you don't trust them either. Because by saying, don't teach this to the masses. Remember we saw that earlier in the Tijuah? Don't teach the masses things. That's a fundamental philosophy in halakha. There are rabbis and rabbinic organizations and entire schools of thought in the Jewish community. The Jewish people cannot be trusted with halakha. By the way, when the Rambam wrote the Rishnah Torah, it was the same thing. There were rabbis who attacked the, How dare you give access to the law? To people. The people don't deserve access to the law. They have to listen to us. This is not a new fight. It's an old fight. And Rav Kook says, if any generation, you could argue, they did it. This generation is different. This generation, when we tell people the truth, they ultimately listen to us. And I'll tell you, this is how it works. When I came to Los Angeles, and I started teaching halakha, for years, the Sephardim there didn't keep halak. They didn't eat meat that was glad kasher. And I would tell them, these halakhot, and by the time it came for me to speak about halal, all of a sudden, they said, well, if this rabbi says the jail there is okay, and we don't have to keep halal, but by halal, he tells us we have to do it, or by yashan, we have to do it. I cannot tell you the dozens and dozens of people who after years of other rabbis not being it, they listened. Why? Because they finally felt trusted. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm an accountant. I'm an engineer. I'm a sec- I'm a professional. I'm a person who I, I have a brain. Stop treating me like a child. Treat me like an adult. And when you treat me like a mature, sophisticated adult, my Judaism will become mature and sophisticated also. And the only people who don't want a mature and sophisticated Judaism are those whose Judaism is too simple and too ignorant to appreciate maturity and sophistication. And my words to you as a Chavua, I don't know if we'll learn together before Purim or before Pesach, but I want you to know that you belong to a group of individuals here, led by a Tamil Chacham, one of the most excellent Tamil Chacham in the world. Rabbi Dweck, you should go to Yuval, because should protect him and guard him, both physically and spiritually. And those who stand with him, if it's Sina, if it's Avi, 
And if it's all the other founders of the Chavua, if it's our moderators, Ohad, and more than everyone else who's allowed me, and if it's all of you, the members who learn here, to realize that you're not just learning about Torah here. Don't underestimate what you're doing to the Jewish community right now. You are making ripple waves uh, through the whole Jewish world. Look, all of the people that the rabbi said we couldn't trust, look at them three nights a week, four nights a week, sitting down with sources in Hebrew, learning, writing notes, asking questions, involved in the Torah. What you are doing is changing this conversation. And you are showing, hopefully, all of Chachmei's land. You can trust us. We want to hear the truth. We want to learn more. And B'zalat Hashem, I bless you all, that you should continue learning Torah together in health and happiness. And the Chavua should grow from strength to strength. And I look forward to being here, back with you again, B'zalat Hashem, very soon. Thank you so much for living with me. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Yonatan Alevi. Thank you, Chazak Thank you for that and uh, those words of encouragement and chizuk for the Chavura and also for your amazing eight-part series on Kashrut, which are now obviously also going to be made available, uh, the recordings to uh, to the Chavura, to all the members. And uh, we are, again, we look forward to, you know, we've had a couple, you know, uh, many classes now, Rabbi Yonatan Alevi and also his wife and uh, the, uh, the Rabbi Nitt, And uh, we look forward to learning more together um, as we continue studying um, as we consider studying the uh, Sephardic approach to Judaism and 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 everything else. So thank you very much, Rabbi Yonatan Alev. Do you have time for questions? Do anyone have questions? I will, uh, and Mort, if you can, if you have time to moderate, you're welcome to. If not, I can be here for as long as people want to have questions. So I'm I'm here. I, I'm in the middle of the day for me. I know it's evening for you. Great. I'm going to I'm going to start the recording now, and we will. Um,